It's not often that we get a husband and wife team here at the Lit Fest at Dubai, but today's the exception, as we welcome to the Emirates World Studio, Judy Finnegan and Richard Maidley. Now, if you're from the UK, you'll instantly recognize those names, as for many years, Richard and Judy presented this morning on ITV, during which time they launched the Richard and Judy Book Club, in association with WH Smith, which had viewers running out to buy the particular book featured each week. So, Richard and Judy, welcome to Dubai Thank again. You. Thank you. I was going to start by asking you whether you enjoyed your last visit, but clearly you did because oh, you're back clearly again. We did. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was lovely. I love this festival. It's so, uh, it's so kind of big and and full of full of enthusiastic people. Everyone looks really happy, and I I particularly enjoy this year the emphasis on children. That seems to have grown. We see millions and millions of kids around and lots of bean bags and children's books and and that that makes it a lot of fun. And there's we obviously go to quite a few literary festivals in the UK, you know. Um and it's funny, people seem to lose their reservations when they come abroad. Um and the conversations that we've been having, either formally, you know, sort of on, on the platforms or, you know, in, in in the restaurants and in the green room afterwards are are much fuller actually and, and more rounded than they tend to be in the UK, where people are still sort of on their English guard. Out here, people let their hair down a bit. And uh, we've had some really interesting literary, I suppose, conversations. Now, everyone knows you as book reviewers, but you're here actually as book authors. Yeah, we we both write. I mean, uh, I've written two novels now. Richard's written three. Uh, we're both, I'm on my third. He's on his fourth. Um, and um, yeah, I, it's a bit nerve-wracking, to be honest. What's it like from, being on the other side? Yeah, exactly. Well, it well, never gets any easier. It's strange. I mean, I started to write my first novel because my first book that I'd written by myself was called Fathers and Sons. And it was a kind of biopic of my grandfather, my father, and me, really, and uh, the relationships between fathers and sons. And it was, you know, it was it, as, in terms of a real story, um, it had quite a lot of elements of a novel about it. So a lot of people said that and said, you should try writing a novel. And it was really hard. I mean, getting the idea for, for a novel is just out of a clear blue sky, is, as everybody who's ever written one will tell you, is really difficult. People say, oh, everyone's got a book in them. No, it, that's not true. No one's got anything in them. You know, you have to seek it and find it. Um, so I wrote my first one, and it was a struggle, but it did okay. You know, it, it sold all right. And uh, people said, write another one. And I thought, well, that'll be easy now. I've broken the, the duck. It's just as hard. Uh, same with the third one, and I'm finding it the same with the fourth. And the hardest thing about it, actually, um, we were saying this at one of our sessions at the festival here, is getting started. The excuses that you make to yourself, just not to start this morning or this afternoon, but I'll start tomorrow. It's a bit late now. It's three o'clock. Now, there's a great cartoon years ago in Private Eye, uh, the strip cartoon that showed about four frames or three frames. And in the first frame, it's two men sitting on a park bench in their suits, eating their lunch. And one of them saying to the other one, Bob, fancy bumping into you in the park like this. I've not seen you for, what, 10, 15 years? What are you doing these days? And the second frame shows the other guy saying, same setup, they're on the bench, saying, um, I'm, uh, I'm writing a novel. And then the third frame shows the other guy saying, yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> and somebody said, somebody made me laugh today. They said that um, the only time that their cooker gets cleaned, their oven gets properly cleaned, is when is when they're writing a novel. Because you'll do anything to put it off. Um, procrastination really is the thief of time. But in the end, you, you sit down and you, you get going, and hopefully you get it done. But it never gets easier. Is that the same for you, Judy? Yeah, <laughs> I like between 
writing a novel I, uh, and starting another one, between finishing one and starting another, I kind of liked, I like quite a bit of time because I think like your brain gets churned up. And so I, it's like the crop rotation system. <laughs> your brain needs to lie fallow for at least a year before it starts sort of trying to work out something Unless you're Jeffrey Archer. Unless you're Jeffrey Archer, but then so few of us are Jeffrey Archer. I mean, he is a one-off. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it, it's not easy. Uh, it's a lot less easy than I thought. I think when you f start your first novel, with me in particular, I was very uh, committed to my first novel. I was very passionate about it because it was about a very private thing. It was about uh, a, a girl that we both knew very well in the UK who died of breast cancer at the age of 41, 42, leaving two small children. And I was, and she lived in, we have a house in Cornwall and so did she and our families were very close. And after she died, we were all very, very affected by that. This was my book, Eloise. And I really wanted to write a book, not about, it wasn't really about her, but it was about the tragedy of a, a woman dying very young, very young of breast cancer and leaving a small young family behind. Um, and so with all of that, and, you know, the, the whole story was kind of told through her, her best friend uh, in Cornwall, who actually had seen her ghost and knew that Eloise was very, very, very worried about what was going to happen to her children. So it was part thriller, but also um, part spiritual. And I was tremendously committed to that, and it was fine writing it. The trouble is the second one, I think, um, when you don't have that fiery thing in your mind, which has been sitting in your mind for about two years, but your, your publisher says, right, that went well, fine, right, we'll have another one now. Do it again, and we'll have, a, we'll have a deadline of August. And you're thinking, what? I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue in my head. And it's, that's what's hard about it, I think. Where did the title come from, I Do Not Sleep? Um, I Do Not Sleep came from a poem, uh, which is, uh, God, I can't remember now. It's by, I mean, these things, God, you... It's water under the bridge, isn't it? water you under the bridge. Move on. But it's kind of, do not cry for me, I do not sleep. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's a poem which people sometimes use at funerals to talk about their, their beloved who, who, who has passed on. And is, it, is it Auden? No, 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 no. It's a woman. And okay. it, it's a woman in the 30s, I think. Right. Um, and um, she, it, it's, it meant the impact was, I do not sleep because actually I'm still here. And I'm, well, in my mind, it meant I'm still here in your brain. And of course, um, with that particular novel, again, it's, all, it's about losing someone. It was about a woman losing her son in a boating accident in um, Cornwall. Um, and her inability to come to terms with the fact that his body was never found. And again, that's something that um, happened to friends of ours um, in Cornwall. They lost their son, who was a fisherman, um, a young fisherman who's only 20. Uh, and he went out on his own one day in a boat and never came back and they never found his body and it was a huge huge horrible thing for them because they didn't have anything they couldn't have a funeral you know they couldn't have a grave they couldn't have anything to, concrete to mourn over and so um that inspired me to write that and the fact that the, in my book the mother felt he was not sleeping wherever he was this this boy this son who was dead was he dead? She'd never seen his body. She'd never, nobody would ever proved that he was dead. Could she believe that he'd really died or could she re really find him? And that was it. Tell us about the Cornish Charmers. Oh, the Charmers. Yeah, well, 
there are people, there still are, I think, especially around Bodmin Moor, there are people who, they go back generations and centuries, who believe that they can cure people. And actually, it being very much a farming community, they can cure animals by touching them, uh, by uh, speaking, to speaking to them, by hanging up sort of charms on trees, which help. Um, and, you know, Cornwall's full of wishing wells as well. Um, and these people feel that they that they actually, although it sounds like they're very kind of sort of slightly witchcraft, they're not. They're deeply Christian. The, the bedrock of their belief is, is in, in God. And they believe that God has given them somehow the power to bring not back from dead to life, but certainly to to, to, to heal um, and to make people feel much happier and better. They still exist around Bodmin. They get fewer every year. Um, in the old cottages around there, there are, there are many of them. And I found, I found a book about them um, and was absolutely fascinated because although it does sound hugely mystical, um, it sort of works in Cornwall. Cornwall is such a strange place, you know. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, it's so other than the rest of England. It feels even more ancient. Um, it's full of uh, tours and uh, memories and ancient legends, magic, everything. You know, the whole place is steeped in mystery and legend. And it's very easy to kind of, when you live down there, which we do for part of the year, it's easy to fall into it and believe it. And I found it wonderful to write about. It's fantastic uh, stimulus. Judy, your book set in Cornwall, as you've just mentioned. Richard, your book is set in the Lake District in Cornwall. Last one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's called the uh, the Night Book. Mm. Um, first of all, tell us why it's set there. Well, I believe in, in my writing, I, I, I believe in setting a strong sense of place. So my first book was set in the south of England during the war, and then it leapt forward to the south of France. Um, I, I enjoy writing about place. I think it, it, it gives a book a kind of a third dimension, you know. Um, the second book was set mostly in the Florida Keys in the 1960s. The first one was set in the 40s and 50s. And the last one, yeah, was set in 1976 in the Lake District. The reason being that I was there then. Uh, I, I think most authors use personal experience quite a lot, you know, and uh, quite a lot of what you read in both of our books, as, as, as Judy just mentioned, our friend who died of breast cancer, um, is based on, on our, our, our personal experience through life. And I went to, to, to the Lake District in 76 as a 19-year-old radio reporter. I'd started in local papers in Essex and in East London, and then I moved up uh, to Cumbria and to Carlisle. And 76, for older listeners, was the hottest summer in living memory. It was the year of the drought, I It remember. was the year of the drought. Uh, and it was even in the Lake District. There was a minister district. for drought. There was a minister for drought. Yeah, and even in the Lake Dennis Howell. Dennis Howell, yeah. He was appointed actually actually, the day before the drought broke. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but yes, for weeks and weeks and weeks, we saw nothing but unbroken blue skies and great heat. And what that did in the Lake District, I remembered, and this was the, the, this was the pivotal point of the plot for the novel, was it warmed up the surface of the lakes in the Lake District so that they were very balmy to swim in. But it was only the top three or four feet, if that, that were, that were now beautifully warm. The winter cold was still there, just below that top surface layer. And people started to drown, because people who weren't very good at swimming and wouldn't normally have gone into the lakes to swim, because they're normally so cold all year round, were going into these limpid waters and frolicking, and then diving down, not realising that they'd hit this freezing, just above freezing layer, and they were drowning. They were inhaling in shock, they were having fits, they were having heart attacks. And I remember on the radio station, we began to put out uh, a warning after every bulletin on the hour, saying, if you're in the Lake District, please don't swim in the lakes. They feel warm, they're not. And... and I was covering inquests, more and more people were drowning, and I suddenly thought, hey, this is, this is the basis for a story. And 
fundamentally, without going into too much detail, what happens is a woman who's married to a horrible, older, wealthy man who abuses her in the worst possible ways, mentally and physically, um, knows that this is the syndrome that's happened this summer and decides to find a way to manoeuvre him into the water so he drowns. She doesn't quite drown him, but she sets up a situation where he might drown, and indeed he does. And it's the question of whether she can get away with it or not. Um, so a lot of what I wrote about, about the lakes themselves, the landscape, the water, what was happening in that particular summer, what the weather was like, was based very much on my experience as a young man. And I, actually, I loved writing it. It was like going back in time. You both chose rather macabre subjects, didn't you? I mean, there's, they're hardly hardly cheerful or whatever. Is, no, is that, is, is that you know, what is it about those particular? I think it's very genre. different. I'm really, I think we're we're very different. I mean, my my I don't my books aren't macabre, but they are about um, death and um, communication with another sort of level, which we. That normally, I mean, I kind of, I kind of feel that, and you feel this so easily in Cornwall. Again, it kind of bathes you in a kind of mystical light. I kind of feel that you can't. You, it's possible. It may be possible. We'd like it to be possible to reach into another world. Mm. Um, my books are are you? Uh, they're about grief, and they're especially about the about motherhood. Um, certainly, I do not sleep, and to a large extent, Eloise were about the incredible emotional pull that a mother has towards her children um, and the incredible uh, way she uh, wants to care for and protect them. And in Eloise, the mother has died and she leaves behind young children, five-year-old girls, girl twins, um, and she knows her ghost, knows that they're in danger and she can't protect them. And that knowledge that she can't protect them and yet she must means that her spirit reaches out to her friend Kathy and tries to get Kathy to protect and save them. My books essentially are about psychopaths. <laughs> the, at the core of each of the stories I've written, including the one I'm writing now, there is a psychopath, because I'm fascinated by oh, it. Yeah. I think we all are. Uh, because psychopaths are kind of like us, but not. Yeah. Uh, I think all of us have elements of a, of a psychopath about us. They're just further down that particular... Dead, well, I think, no, I think we all, we all sometimes have difficulty in having empathy. Yeah. Um, and psychopaths have that all the time. Um, and they stand in an extreme corner of the human zoo. So my first book was about a psychopathic Spitfire pilot. If such a thing could have existed, well, why not? The second one was about a psychopath in Florida, a serial killer. The last one, uh, The Night Book, the woman who I mentioned, she, she's not all that it... Her, the murder of her husband is not fully justified. And, the, and the, the actual title, The Night Book, is about the diary, the secret diary, the fantasy diary she keeps about how she'd like to kill him. And it's very violent, involves violent torture. It's horrible. The current book opens with a crucifixion. Um, in modern-day England, in the Cotswolds, there's a place just outside Cirencester. It's a Roman amphitheatre. It was built in the first century AD, which very few people seem to know about, but it's big, and it's recognisably a Roman amphitheatre. It's now covered in grass and turf, but you, can, you don't look at it and think, like you do with some old ruins and, and remains, what's that? You know straight away it's a Roman amphitheatre, and you can walk in where the gladiators and the animals were once led. It had seating for about 8,000 people. And when I went there about two years ago... In, it just in light bulb moment. I thought, there's a novel here. There's something here. Um, and yeah, it opens in the amphitheater on a, on a June morning, uh, midsummer's morning. It's about four o'clock. It's getting light. And two police officers have been called because people have heard strange noises coming from it. And they go in, and there doesn't seem to be anything there. And then under the torchlight, because it's quite dark inside the amphitheater, they see a structure in the middle of the amphitheater, right in the center of the amphitheater. And they walk over with their torches. And it's some kind of wooden 
device. As they get closer, it's, it's an X. It's a large X, about eight feet by eight feet. And they get very close, and they see that there's masking tape on the four points of the X. And they realize they're looking at a, at a Roman cross, because that's how Romans used to execute people on the X, like St. Peter was executed. And there's something on the other side. And they go round, and there's a body, upside, inverted, upside down. And that's how it opens. And obviously, whoever's done it is a psychopath. But like Meriel, the woman in, in the last book, he has his reasons. And, we, and as we will discover, we'll go through it when I finish writing it, there's a kind of justification for this appalling crime. Um, so I quite like trying to sort of um, conjoin the extreme with how we might have behaved in a given situation. So, but yeah, they're all about psychopaths, basically. So do you both see yourself now firmly in the role of authors as opposed to TV presentation? Is that side of your life um, in the past now, or do you see it? For me, I, I, I've, I've done telly. I don't want to do any more. Um, it's, it's fine. It's good. I've had a good career. Um, I've enjoyed it, but it's incredibly demanding. Um, and I just want a kind of um, slightly softer life, and writing fits into that. Mm. Although I love the book club, because I, I, I read endlessly, and the idea of sort of selecting really good authors is, is very, very attractive. So I, I love that side. But TV, no. For Richard, not so much. For me, I'm, I'm, I'm having the best of both worlds, really. I'm enjoying writing. As Judy says, we love running the book club. It's, uh, it's one of the most satisfying things we've ever done. But yeah, I uh, basically, I'm a kind of like a minister without portfolio. I'm a presenter without portfolio. And the way my broadcasting career has developed since we stopped working together a few years ago is I now... I'm a kind of a professional seat warmer. I keep people's seats warm. So I sit in for Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain. Um, I sit in for, um, I used to sit in for Terry Wogan, bless him, on Radio 2. I now sit in for his successor, Michael Ball, on the Sunday show, the Sunday brunch show. Um, I sit in for Matthew Wright on The Right Stuff. Um, I, I sit in for presenters on talk radio. I'm going to be doing some LBC work as well. And so I just flit from one person's seat to the, to the next as a kind of a guest host. And it's enormous fun because your name isn't on the tin. So you don't carry any of the responsibility. You just go in and show off for a couple of hours on live broadcasting so I love doing that and I'm going to keep on doing that but writing is very important to both of us definitely yeah. and of course now that gives you both the freedom to jump on a plane and come out to Dubai and uh, take part in the Live Fest and of, course, and of course as a writer you can write anywhere absolutely yeah I mean that's the thing I really love most about because the kind of TV we did which was daily live uh, five days a week um, really meant you couldn't do anything else. You really couldn't. And it's a wonderful experience to actually have a life, to be honest. <laughs> a life beyond the TV studio. We once did a show called Get a Life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say it's been marvellous seeing you both here. Thank you so much for stopping by and talking about your latest books. And do come and see us again Great soon. Pleasure. Great and, pleasure. And we hope your listeners have a good flight.